so tied to you. Been with you for over 15 years. And you always have been generous. Always. And so you know a part of our tradition is on the first Sunday of each month we take up special collection just for our people in the congregation who have a need. so many different ways. And uh, I get kind of choked up thinking about it. But I wanted to add one little thing to it this morning. I want you to keep up what you've been doing on our special collection. Wasn't it Paul that said we're to do good unto all men, but especially the church? There is no better advertising for the love of Christ and for us also to be alert to and to give to people outside the church from your pocket in the name of Christ. And uh, a lot of people come because they know what we do with our, ourselves internally. And I don't remember, Mike, it seems like there's about 60,000 or more each year that we take up just for our members. So the church has a reputation for prayer and, and generosity. But let's make sure individually, if you can, to be alert for some of those out there that maybe just a helping hand will open their heart up to the gospel. We had a great lesson this morning in a small auditorium about the gospel. And I was really amazed and pleased at the young man so the way to handle this thing is everybody give a little at least and we'll have enough for our family 
and then try to do some things individually, okay? Father, it's, it's, it's difficult to tell you how you've opened our hearts up here. I've just been amazed because giving is not something the world generally does. But your people do it and love doing it because they're yours. And because they're made in your image and have been born in you again of the water and the spirit, they want to be like you. Our God is holy and our God is generous. And let us all try to walk in that same attitude of mind. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Spirit, for helping me and our church to be able to talk to our Father so intimately to his glory. Amen. Use it for your glory.
church? I was good. I was worried. You know, there are those mornings where I got to be like, good morning. And you're like, good morning. And I'm like, no, you can do better than that. And then we're back and forth for like five minutes. I want to get to the text, man. Uh, you can see this new graphic. Uh, we are starting a new series this week. It's going to last for four weeks. The series is called Jonah. Catch me if you can. I want to ask you a question, church. What are you running from? What are you running from? There are those of us in life who, for whatever reason, are still convinced that there's a piece of us that we can keep secret. And usually when we're keeping a piece of us secret, we're doing so because it's sinful. And if you're keeping a piece of you secret away from God, if you're, if you're running from God in that area of your life, then you're in sin. And what the story of Jonah really is about is one guy's struggle with that sin in his life. God's got a direct call on the man's life for a specific ministry, and it seems bigger than he is. God says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. Jonah's like, oh, no, you didn't, God. I don't, come on now. <laughs> Nineveh was probably the most powerful city, country, army in the world at the point in time where Jonah is called to minister to them. They're also probably the most pagan the most heathen, the most sin-sick, the most morally bankrupt culture in the world at that point also. And likely Jonah was seeing the big, huge responsibility that God had placed on him by calling him to go to Nineveh. And he looked at himself and measured himself by his own standard rather than relying on the strength and the power of God to propel his ministry and mission forward successfully. And maybe, maybe that's some of you too. Maybe you know what you need to be doing. It just seems too big or too difficult or like it's going to take too long. And so you just want to throw in the towel and run and hide. Well, again, I'm here to tell you that if you're running and hiding from God, that is sin. James chapter 4 verse 17 says, If you know, if you know what good you should be doing, and you're not doing it, then it's sin. And one thing that's hard in ministry is to whittle down a section of Scripture into just one specific main idea. I would probably argue that that is the task of preaching. And I'm going to cover the first chapter in the book of Jonah here in just a second. And if I had to say the main idea of the chapter is the consequence for having sin in your life unresolved sin in your life and the consequences thereof are the subject of this message this morning. I'm calling it fleeing from God and the subtitle if I put one would be how sin complicates things. Let's turn in our Bibles to Jonah chapter 1 starting in verse 1. Now if you have your Bible and it's a physical Bible I want to tell you there is no shame this morning in turning to the table of contents to find the book of Jonah. You know what I'm talking about. It's one of those little teeny books amidst a lot of other little teeny books that we call the minor prophets. So use your little thumb index or flip to the table of contents. It's all good. If you've got an iPhone, iPad, or some other electronic device, then shame on you because it's so much easier for you to find this, and that's not fair. 
All right, Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Let's get right to it. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. There are four things I want to focus on this morning that are a direct result of this sin in Jonah's life. The sin he committed by running from God, by fleeing from God, despite knowing what God's call on his life was, that if we will run from God, and that can be a metaphoric running, concealing a part of our life, spending money on sinful things, any one of those kinds of behaviors would be representative of running from God. If we're doing that, we're going to face some of these consequences, a greater cost, a longer struggle, a harder row, and a tougher swim. There will be a great price to pay when you run from the Lord. Don't pay a price to do it. There will be a great price to pay, church, if you run from God. Don't pay a price to do it. Jonah chapter 1, verse 3, after paying the fare, this is the greater cost, after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to free from the Lord. Say Tarshish five times fast. Why don't you think it's right? You've got to stumble there. You try it, right? I warmed up. I was like aluminum linoleum like a hundred times to prep for this, and I still, Tarshish. Um, Jonah pays what I would consider a fool's price. How insane to purchase a ticket 
that ends up costing you the misery and frustration and feeling of fatigue that he faces as a result of his own sin. Jonah's one of two guys in Scripture that I could remember that literally paid something to disobey God. Jonah and Judas. And we didn't read the end of the story of Jonah today, but they really end, Jonah and Judas, those stories, in a similar place. Judas p gets paid for betraying the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this exchange of money, he ends up feeling miserable and, de and depressed to the point of taking his own life. And here Jonah has paid funds to run from God. And in the fourth chapter, we're going to see that he's at about the same spot afterwards. You know, these two guys aren't the only people who got wrapped up in money and goods as they were fleeing from something. Martin Frobisher was born in 1535. That's way long, that's longer than any of you guys who brag about, you know, I've been here, Trent, longer than you were. No, that's a good thing. I mean, the way I say that, I sound all arrogant. I'm not trying to be arrogant. Martin Frobisher was born in 1535. He was charged by the crown of England to go find a northwest passage in the New World. With a fleet of ships and a company of soldiers, he lands on the shores of what we would now call Canada in search for a passageway from the east coast to the west coast of North America. While he's trying to decipher the, the seeming undecipherable code of the landscape of the north, he happens upon what he thinks is the biggest stockpile of gold anyone has ever seen. For months he sets up shop and begins to extract the gold ore from the ground. 200 extracted tons later he loads his ships up and he sets sail back for England. The crown is so overwhelmed at the hordes of gold he has brought back from the new land they send him again a few years later with twice the ships, double the men and a greater desire to accumulate goods. For two years he mines the same area. He brings back 1,350 tons of gold and sets it before the foot of the crown. After two years of smelting the substance down, to Michael's dismay, he realizes that the ore he has brought back from the new land is pyrite, which is a substance that we know today as fool's gold. And some of us are equally as invested in accumulating wealth for ourselves as Michael was back in the 1500s. And I'm here to tell you this morning, church, if you're not careful, at the end of your quest, you're going to realize that you had invested in something foolish. And the sweat equity and the finance equity and the relationship equity and the emotional equity that you have invested to generate that wealth will not have been worth the sacrifice. And some of us may not be trying to gain wealth. Maybe it is some distinct sin in our lives that we're investing time and energy and money into. What a foolish price to pay for something guaranteed to end 
in misery. I think one of the reasons we end up traveling down a sin-sick road is because we don't have a plan. And the colloquialism goes, if you fail to plan, I got it, I was worried I wouldn't, then you're planning to fail. And some of us are just arbitrarily living our lives the way we want to on our time based on our will, not on what God's calling us to. As though God is unfamiliar with who we are. Church, God knows every beat of your heart. Every hair on your head, He's counted. David, in the 139th Psalm, puts it like this. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide and the light will become night around me, even the darkness, Lord, will not be dark to you. The night will shine like day, for darkness is as light to you. If you're planning to keep something secret from the Lord, then I want to tell you, you're planning on failure. And if you're paying a foolish price, and your plan is destined to fail, then the cost of those behaviors is going to be greater than you can afford to pay. And when you're out of money, and you're out of energy, and you're out of spiritual energy, and there's no time left, what you're going to realize is that the struggle has been longer then you can stay in it, and you're going to feel defeated. In Jonah chapter 1, verse 4, the Lord sends a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. I want to tell you something, church. It is not God's will for sin to occur. I've said this before, and I'll say it again, and repetition is your friend. If you've been through abuse or some neglect, or someone has inflicted pain upon you, I'm telling you, and I can prove this in God's Word, that that is not God's will. And God can bring about your healing in, in spite of all of those things. But I do want to tell you this morning that some of the storms in your life, just like the storm that Jonah is living through in our story today, are the direct result of God's rebuke and His chastening on you. We always talk about the grace of God and God's love, but forget not that we serve a God who is holy and a God who loves you enough to discipline you as a result of your sin. My two-year-old son does not understand electricity. And I know that surprises you, as smart as I am, that he wouldn't have inherited that intelligence and automatically know. And I heard a minister use this illustration, and it, it just so eloquently helped me understand the function of God's discipline in our lives. I discipline my son when he's headed to the light socket with a knife or a fork because I want him to understand that that behavior will result in consequences that he can't withstand. And so if he goes towards the light socket and he's got something that he can put in it, man, I'm all over that. If my kids run out into the street when we go out to, outside, we live on a busy thoroughfare, man, I'm all over that. We have three kids under age six at my house right now 
a lot of the time I feel like I'm a professional disciplinarian. Anybody else out there feel my pain? Some of you guys got little kids. Come on now, Brown family. Man, it's like I'm, 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 I'm tanning some hide just about every time I turn around. And I'm praying, Lord, just make this effective at some point so I don't have to do this anymore. But my hope, church, is that when I discipline my kids as they're about to run out into the street, that they have some sense of fear. And right at that moment, at their ages, that fear has to be of me. They don't understand the velocity of a moving object and the implications if that object collides human flesh and bone and what could happen afterwards. I want them to know that Daddy says that's wrong. And our God has been telling some of you that about your particular behavior for a long time. And one way to make your life way more difficult is to ignore the storm in your life that God did cause as a result of your sin. And stop the behavior that results in the storm. So what do these guys aboard the ship do? They cast lots. They find out it's Jonah. They go to him, and what do they say? Verse 8, they asked him, tell us, who's responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What's your country from? What people are you? They're looking at the wrong things. They're thinking it's the country he's from or the family he's from or the job he does or the place he lives. And some of you are in a storm and you're looking around thinking, maybe i got to move, maybe i got to need to get a different job, maybe I need to change my wardrobe. And it's none of those things. It's that your relationship with a God who loves you is off kilter because of your sin and your lack of surrender and overabundance of selfishness. So don't assume that a change that's very temporary is going to result in lasting blessing. That's one way to make things much less doable. Is to look in every area except the one that matters most, which is your relationship with God. You know, what's interesting about this whole deal is before these guys figure out it's Jonah, my impression is that Jonah really feels like He's safe. He's safe. He pays the fare in Joppa. He gets aboard the ship headed for Tarshish. And, and he's got to be feeling like, I, I made it. Nobody knows. I'm on the ship. I'm safe. I don't have to go to Nineveh. So what's the guy do? He heads under the, the deck and he goes to sleep. And he's still sleeping as the storm is raging. Now, I am in... By training the mental health field, and I think probably this is the first clinically diagnosable case of narcolepsy, okay? How this guy is able to sleep through a storm that the sailors are concerned is literally going to rip the boat apart is beyond me. But here's, I think, the application on, on this point. Maybe your life isn't the one in the storm, but you're sleeping while the ones you love are in the middle of a storm so great, it's about to rip them apart. Wake up! 
There is a storm raging maybe in the life of somebody that loves you or somebody that you love and you're dismissing of it. You're not doing anything about it. You're sleeping through it. And I'm here to tell you that I think the way the enemy lulls most of us to sleep is by letting us pass through calm waters a little bit longer than is useful. And so if you haven't been through a storm lately, then why don't you focus on somebody that you feel like is and wake up and do something about it. As a result of Jonah's disobedience, the people aboard the ship have a harder row than they would have had Jonah not been disobedient. Jonah chapter 1 verse 13, the Bible says this, Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. The people aboard the ship, I think, are, are guys like you and me. I think they're pretty good people. I mean, all they knew that morning is they were headed to Tarshish, going about their business. Some guy hops on. He wants to go with them. They're like, cool. This storm comes up. It's way more fierce than anything they've encountered. They figure out who's doing it. The guy says, yes, you're right. It's me. It's Jonah. I'm running from God. You've got to toss me overboard. And these guys don't want to do it. So what do they try? In their own effort, they try to outrow God. Some of you are doing the exact same thing. There's, there's sin in, in one area of your life, and you're trying to outrow God and overcompensate for that sin in that one area by doing something big in another area. And what's happening is you're spinning your wheel, you're never gaining any traction, and you're getting exhausted because of the corrupt nature of that one area of your life you're not going to make any authentic progress in the other area and so you're going around and around and around and around and God loves you enough to continually attempt to allure you despite your best efforts to avoid him I think this is cause and effect the harder they row the greater the winds blow so they row harder, the winds blow harder. And no matter what, you're always going to lose when you're trying to outrow God. So stop doing that too. There's a whole lot of stop it's in this. I should have just stood up and said, Jonah chapter 1, stop it, surrender, get right, that's it. Come on. God loves you enough to send some heavenly allure to you constantly. In the midst of your storm, in the midst of your disobedience, in the midst of your best efforts to outrun and outrow him, he's constantly calling out to you saying, you sir, you ma'am, you son, you daughter, come close to me, stop fighting me. And that's why some of you are exhausted or feeling burnout is because you got junk in your life and you're trying to overcompensate and you're never going to compensate enough because there's nothing you can do to earn it. And if you're doing that, you better eventually be prepared for a much tougher swim. Jonah chapter 1 verse 15, they took Jonah and they threw him overboard and the raging sea grew calm. Sometimes in life we got to lay aside the dead weight in our lives. 
The writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, the first verse, puts it like this. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. The reason you're not contending for the championship, church, is because you're trying to carry dead weight to the finish line. Don't expect to be able to finish the ch as a champ when you're carrying more weight than everybody that's running combined. I think probably at some point the thing that compels Jonah to, to run is just the fact that he's run away from God. You know, it's like the second I go down that path, my pride and my arrogance creeps up within me. And it's like I, I almost can't admit, you know what, I made a wrong decision here. I've got to turn around. I've got to follow Christ. I've got to do what I know to be good and right and true. And then all the junk from all my past failures comes back to mind. And now I'm weighted down and I'm burdened and I start to try and overcompensate. And there's nothing I can do that I ever feel like really gains me even one step of progress in the right direction. Well, you've got to slim down if that's you. Don't expect to be able to tread water indefinitely. I'm reminded of the story of Peter when Jesus asks him out of the ship onto the water. And Peter goes from a believing Christian to a backpedaling Christian to a dog-paddling Christian as he slowly starts to notice the storm around him. But once he slims down and all else fades from his view except the one thing that matters most, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, he finds the hand he needs in the time of his distress and he's able to move forward. Whatever it is that the enemy's haunting you with from your past, my prayer is that you let that go and surrender it to God such that that can't be weight that holds you back any longer. The other thing I want to mention here as we're getting ready to conclude is to shape up. Now in my house, remember, most of my dialogue is with children under age six. So when I say shape up, what I'm meaning there is get your mind right, get your spirit right, get your attitude right, or you're about to pay the consequence of not shaping up. And you know, the title of our series, as I'm getting ready to conclude here, Catch Me If You Can, was taken from a famous, I guess famous, more like, maybe I should say infamous, forgery expert. The man's name was Frank Abagnale. The movie was Catch Me If You Can. This guy forged just about any document you can imagine. He practiced medicine, with a forged license. He studied for a bar exam and took it with a forged law degree diploma as he sat for the exam. He forged money, he forged stocks and bonds, he forged a license to allow him to fly planes. But as I'm watching the movie and as I've done some research on Abagnale, as he's going about living his life forging everything that he's doing, it seems to me that nothing is fulfilling enough, so the stakes are constantly getting higher. Forging money wasn't enough, so he's forging stocks and bonds, which aren't enough, so he forges a diploma, sits for the bar exam, that's not enough, so he's practicing medicine later, then he's flying planes later, nothing ever really fulfilling until he gets caught and he shapes up. And the way that the story concludes seems like he has more joy than he ever did while he was forging his existence. 
He ends up working for the FBI, helping to catch criminals who are also forgers. And he's, you know, basically incarcerated, and someone's always watching over him, and he doesn't seem to have freedom. But the way the narrative goes, it's almost like him having his life right was much more rewarding than any of the junk he was doing to try and find joy. And so I think that's the, that's the overall lesson here in Jonah, and that's particularly the lesson from Jonah chapter 1. Ultimately, the consequences of you living a forged life, a fake life with hidden sin, is misery. And the easiest, simplest way out is surrender to an authentic God who can help you live authentically. I don't know what the need is in your life this morning, church. God does, and you can't hide it from him. My prayer for you this morning is that you would bring that forward and let us surround and pray with you. And maybe from this day forward, you can stop running from God. We fall down, we lay our crowns at the feet of Shining face, like the sun, 
became as white His clothes became as white as light Listen to him You gotta listen to him Listen to him Oh, 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 oh. listen to him Listen to him Moses and Elijah talking there with Jesus. A cloud enveloped them, terrified. The disciples face down to the ground, looked up, and the only one they found was Jesus. Glorified, glorified. This is my son. My
more abundantly. Restless folks live restless lives, but the Father hears their cries. He can feel the sorrow they feel. Jesus came to empathize more than you can realize, offering the life that is real. Since he came to give us life, there's been nothing like his life. I'm complete with it is life. Such a source of healing, simple truth revealing, there's no other feeling like Since he came to us, there's been nothing like his life. I'm complete with it is life. Such a source of healing, simple truth revealing, there's no other feeling like Responsibility to tell the child about God. Yes. 
see that child standing on the corner wondering which way to go should he go left or should he go right i believe the child really ought to know now who is gonna tell the child about jesus who is gonna tell the child about god going to tell well i believe i believe it's my responsibility to tell the child about god See that child, his life is a mess I do wonder what's inside of his head I've got to tell you all If someone doesn't tell him about the love of the Lord You know he's gonna wind up dead Who is gonna tell the child about Jesus? Who is gonna tell the child about God? Well, I believe, I believe it's my responsibility to tell the child about God. Don't you know who is going to tell the child about Jesus? Who is going to tell the child about God? Well, I believe, I believe it's my responsibility to tell the child about God. Who is going to tell them about God? Who tell the children? Who tell the children? Who lend a hand? Without the man, think about it. Think about it. Can't you see that boy hanging in the streets? He's trying to do the best he can. But if he only knew he had a father who cared, who cared, would he be a better man? the child about Jesus who is gonna tell the child about God well I believe I believe it's my responsibility to tell the child about God who is gonna tell the child about Jesus who is gonna tell the child about God going to tell I believe I believe it's my responsibility to tell the child about God who is gonna tell the child about Jesus who is going to tell the child about God? Everybody said that anybody could do the important thing somebody should do. Everybody knows that anybody could do all the good things that nobody did. Well, the preacher came to me and said, what I ought to do? If I wanted to make my religion to he do it himself. But he really didn't have the time. He said that the duty was mine. Oh, no. Everybody said that anybody could do Not me. the important thing somebody should do. Everybody knows that anybody could do all the good things that nobody did. Why me? Everybody said that anybody could do the important thing somebody should do. Everybody knows that anybody could do all the good things that nobody did. Well, the deacon came by and said, give me a hand. If you want me going to the promised land, here is something that I don't have time to do. So I better give it to you. Everybody said that anybody could do the important thing somebody should do. Everybody knows that anybody could do all the good things that nobody did. Everybody said that anybody could do the important thing somebody should do. Everybody knows that anybody could do all the good things that nobody did. Well, I'm too busy, so I tell everybody. Your work's got to get done by somebody. 
It could be done by anybody, but nobody, 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 children as your army as your ambassadors we just pray father that we will consider that what you have trusted us with the good news of your son Jesus and I pray father that we will leave confident of your promises confident of the fact that your spirit lives within us and that we can boldly share the hope that we have and realize that every word we utter and every action we take will reflect on that gospel father again for those that are visiting we pray for safety and their travel that you'll be able to strengthen them and and uh, lead them to work their homes and that they can be a testimony for your name again father we just pray that we honored you today and that we will honor you the rest of the week and it's through your son jesus we pray amen <laughs> 